Well, if you would take that Bible and open back to John chapter 12, John chapter 12, and we really come to a a watershed issue in John's gospel. Watershed because his public ministry, as we close out chapter 12, will be completed. In fact, in many ways, it's completed as we look at the text today because his miracles and his message have been delivered in John's gospel. And then from this time forward, I think you know, in John chapter 13, he goes into the upper room discourse with his disciples from 13 to 17. And then in chapter 18, it's the trial and the arrest. And so here, it's a watershed issue because his public ministry has just closed. What's interesting about this passage is as he's spent three years now in ministry declaring the gospel, as he spent three years delivering these powerful miracles, for the most part, many people failed to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. They failed to trust him. In fact, look in 1237, as he closed his public ministry, it said, though he had done so many signs before them, it says there, they still did not believe in him. Now, what John's going to do is then go on from there and explain to us the nature of unbelief and explain to us how come there is so much unbelief, both in biblical times as well as in our own day. Certainly the Lord is redeeming people. We praise the Lord for that. We heard a wonderful testimony, two of them on Wednesday. One young man was redeemed here just in the last six months. And if you didn't have the privilege to be there on Wednesday night, he was being asked in our church to give a testimony at Teen Challenge. And while he's writing his testimony to give to Teen Challenge uh, just a few months back, He was convicted of his own sin as he laid out both the good news and the bad news of his own sin and was brought actually to conviction for the first time in his life of his own sin. So the Lord is doing many great things. And then he came to Christ and was baptized on Wednesday night. But there's a lot of people who just don't believe. I was with a good friend just a couple weeks ago and he came here. Uh, just as he was in here in the community for business, and whenever he's here, I, I get together with him, and he wanted to see our property, and so I began to show him the property. He just stopped by. I walked him in the Generations building and showed him what we're doing there to educate our children in the glories of the gospel week in, week out, and then I brought him into the worship center here and just showed him and He was so thankful, and it was just a joy to be able to show him. I've known this particular friend for well over 30 years, and then as I was walking over to the warehouse over this way, right as we got to the door, I asked him how his dad was, and he just stopped because it's been a difficult time with his dad, and his dad is unbelieving. And I said, what, what, what's the issue with your dad? And to the best of my recollection, just a handful of days ago, here's where his dad's struggle is. 
His dad said in so many words, speaking of God, speaking of Christ, he said that he commands worship and threatens you if you don't yield to his will. In other words, he commands it from you. He commands it from him. And if you don't yield to his will, he's going to threaten you. If you do not, in so many words, as dad said, bow to him, then he burns you forever in hell. And he went on to tell his son, my friend, if a man or a king or a dictator said this to his people, we would call him crazy. We would call him insane. And we would be justified in overthrowing him. But because, his father said, he is the creator and he says it, it's okay. Amazing. I mean, you would think that if he's acknowledging God, I'm saying to you, that God Almighty is the creator, he could demand worship. He could demand you to, to bow your knee. And in his own mind, he's thinking because he demands it, it's okay because he's God. So my friend, I think he was choking up at this point, then asked his dad if he would be able to provide him an answer to his question regarding eternal torment, if his dad would listen. And his dad said, probably not. I mean, that's just devastating. To to think you could be in a conversation with someone, his own father, offering him the hope of eternal life, offering him the good news of the gospel, if he would listen, and his answer was, probably not. I mean, frankly, it it was to my friend, and I just stopped and prayed with him, devastating. Just devastating. I mean, the strangle, do you experience this sometimes with people you share with? The stranglehold of unbelief is so strong. How do you explain unbelief? How do you explain when you're talking to someone and sharing the good news with them, they just have no desire for it? Now, what's fascinating as we turn to John chapter 12, I mentioned a few weeks back, this is his final public invitation. It's his final public gospel presentation. And remember that final invitation in John chapter 12, it went out to all without distinction in verse 32. We noted that that gospel, though it went out to all, was not embraced by all. They said at the end of verse 34, who is the Son of Man? But nevertheless, in 35 and 36, Jesus was commanding you and I and 7 billion people in the world to walk in the light and to believe in the light. And then something very fascinating occurs. Pick up the text in 1236. And it's in 36B. In A, it says, while you have the light, 
believe in the light. And so it's fascinating that though they were not believing him in verse 34, he commanded them to believe in the light, verse 36, to walk in the light, that you may become sons of light. He is ever giving the gospel. And then, do you see this in 36b? It might even be a new paragraph. When Jesus had said these things, this is cryptic in some ways, he departed and hid himself from them. It's fascinating. He hid himself. He had just been telling them, while the light is in front of you, believe the light because the light's only going to be here a little longer. And out of his gracious heart, he commanded them to believe and walk in him. And then as soon as making that statement, the text says that he hid from them. Now, you know, there's other places in the gospel where he escaped from their midst, but this one is different. It is, I believe, a dramatic act portraying the judgment of God. In other words, he gave that final presentation and now he's walking and living that out by hiding from them. This will become clear in a moment. Now, after that took place, look again at 37. Though he had done so many signs before them, miracle after miracle, it says they still did not believe in him. Now, I think what John's trying to show us here is that this gospel presentation, this final invitation, is met with unbelief. And we spoke just briefly on that, that you know that in John 1, as we've exposited through it, he came into his own, and his own did not, what? Receive them. I mean, you think, how, how come you don't get the response sometime when you give the gospel? He came into his own, the long-awaited Messiah, and they didn't receive him. Jesus will say other times in John 5.40, you refuse to come to me that you may have life in him. He comes, he gives his life, he teaches, he performs miracles, and in 540, you refuse to come to me. He said in John 8.45, because I tell you the truth, he said, you do not believe in me. I mean, if my friend was devastated, can you imagine this? The end of three years, he just raised Lazarus from the grave and they still do not believe in him? Do you remember when we were there in John 11? After he was raised from the dead, they sought to put him to death again because of his testimony. And so we come to this watershed issue because it poses a theological question for us. Did Israel's unbelief surprise God? Did it surprise him? Three years, I mean, evidently, Whatever he came to do, he closes it, he hides from them, and they're still unbelieving. I think I could ask the question, did God's plan fail? Did his purpose fail? Did Jesus as an evangelist fail? Does God still reign, though so many rebel against him? Now, what John's going to do is explain to us in this little section here why unbelief prevails. It's fascinating 
Because what he does is he provides for us two prophetic fulfillments that reveal the reason for unbelief. Two prophetic fulfillments that reveal the reason that people unbelieve, the reason they, unbe- they were disbelieving in his day, and the reason that they're unbelieving as we give the word out to people. Those two prophetic fulfillments are, number one is man's stubborn choice, and he's going to fulfill that in the book of Isaiah, and I'll show you that. And then secondly, the second reason for unbelief is God's sovereign purpose. But I hope this is helpful to you, and then we'll look at this together. Let's look at the first reason for unbelief. The first reason for unbelief, and I want to make this crystal clear to you, here's why there's so much unbelief is because of man's stubborn choice. Because of man's stubborn choice. And what John is saying here through the inspiration of the Spirit in verse 37 is don't be so surprised by unbelief. In other words, you could be devastated as you give this out as he did, and it's met by widespread unbelief. Jesus even said, broad is the gate and narrow is the the road that leads to life, right? But why is that? He said, don't believe, don't be surprised. Look at verse 38. There's a purpose clause here. He said, if you look at the the end of 37, they did not believe in him. Verse 38, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what 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 he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Here's the prophetic fulfillment. John, if you're looking in your Bible, you can tell it's italicized, is quoting here in this first fulfillment from Isaiah 53. He's going to have a second uh, uh, fulfillment in Isaiah 6. I'll take you to that. But he's quoting here Isaiah 53.1. I think it's important. Would you turn in your Bible and go look at that? In other words, there's, he's dealing with man's stubborn choice and he's trying to say, hey, this doesn't thwart the plan of God. You remember, of course, as I turn you to Isaiah chapter 53, please look there. You know that that's that tremendous passage on the suffering servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. You're familiar with that. You're familiar with 53.6, all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You know that. You know 53.5. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. Verse 4. Surely our griefs or our, surely our, it says he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. You're familiar with this. This is the passage. This is one of the servant songs. This is the fifth of, that, of those stanzas. And it's dealing with the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's dealing in prophetic fulfillment of what the prophet said would be true of Israel that became fulfilled in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is an amazing prophecy down to the minutest detail fulfilled exactly by the person of Christ. 
But it's interesting because before it talks about his death, look back, and this is the direct quote from 1238. Look here in Isaiah 53, 1. Here, there Isaiah the prophet opens and says, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? In other words, he's quoting in John 12 this statement in 53.1. In fact, if you back up in Isaiah 52, do you remember this? In verse 13, behold, my servant shall act wisely. Watch this language. He shall be high and lifted up, speaking of his cross, and shall be also exalted into glory in essence. And many were astonished at you, and his appearance was marred beyond any human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, and he will sprinkle many nations. And so he's talking about the death of that suffering servant. And then in 53, you understand, he's asking this question then, and Jesus says it and states it in John 12, who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Two thoughts there in 53.1 is that Israel was rejecting the servant of the Lord. And he says there rhetorically, who has believed what he has heard from us? In other words, they reject his message. In other words, it's, it's a rhetorical question, who? And the answer is very little. The answer is, at the end of the chapter, only a remnant. In other words, this message came. This message was now fulfilled in Christ. And who has believed it? And the the point is, not many. In fact, they reject both his message, the coming Messiah, but they reject his miracles. Look again at 53.1 when it says, And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? You say, what is that? The arm of the Lord is just a figurative expression here in this text, and it's actually all over the Old Testament. The arm of the Lord speaks of God's power, and you see this all through the Old Testament. In other words, to whom has his arm, to whom has his power been revealed? In other words, he not only did Isaiah, and now Jesus proclaimed the message, But Jesus now was showing and demonstrating the power of God by way of his miracles. And so what Jesus is saying is just as they have rejected God and his servant in the Old Testament, they will now reject the very Son of God in the New Testament. I think here's what Isaiah is saying. Has anyone believed what he said, the prophets and God in that sense, And has anyone recognized the power of God at work? And what Israel did in the Old Testament is rejected both the Lord's message preached and they rejected both here now the Lord's miracles performed. It is the tragic nature of unbelief. And and the point here that he's making is man is responsible for that. In other words, why is it rejected? Why is his miracles overlooked? I mean, just frankly, how do you overlook the resurrection of Lazarus today? How do you overlook any of his miracles today? I mean, just if you just look at that testimony, both of words and power, words and message and miracles, how do people overlook that? 
Well, the nature and the stubbornness of unbelief. I want to show you something. Would you look in your Bible over in the book of Romans for a second? You say, well, why, why is there so much unbelief? I, I found this intriguing. In Romans chapter 10, would you look there? That great call of God that goes out. That great message of salvation that goes to all. You'll, would you glance down in verse 16? And it says there, in the middle of 10, 16 of Romans, for Isaiah says, Lord, and here Paul is quoting Isaiah 53, 1, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? He's quoting it again. Isaiah 53 is in other places in the New Testament. And he's asking that question. What's interesting is if you go back to verse 15, Romans 10, 15, how are they to preach unless they are sent as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. And again, he's quoting there from Isaiah 52, 7, that the suffering servant would preach the good news. When Jesus came, Paul's saying in Romans 10, that good news being preached was the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But I draw your attention to 1016a. Look at it. But they, Paul says in verse 16, have not all, what? Obeyed the gospel. They've not obeyed the gospel. And the reason that unbelief prevails today is man's stubborn heart to obey the gospel. It's not because man doesn't understand. It's not because logically he can't follow the conclusion. The bottom line today is people do not want to submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ. So the reason there's such prevailing unbelief is this. I think he's saying, listen, they rejected the Old Testament in Isaiah 53, and they're rejecting me now as the fulfillment of that. McLaren, one of the great preachers, said this, and he was speaking of unbelief. And he said, I thought, interesting, he said, disobedience is the root of unbelief. He said, if faith is not exercised, the true cause lies deeper than all intellectual reasons. He said, it lies in the moral aversion of the human will, in the pride of independence, which says, who is Lord over us? And why should we depend on Jesus Christ? End of quotes. Who is Lord over us? Kind of like that dad said. Who does God think he is to demand worship? Listen, unbelief biblically is a decision to live your life as if there is no God. That's what it is. And, and that's where you need to be praying as you're speaking with people. Unbelief, beloved, is a deliberate decision to reject Jesus Christ. It is not like not known. No, the message is there. The miracles, the power is there. But you're living your life as if there's no God. In fact, you remember all those places, I think it's on the screen in Numbers 14, how long he's saying to his own people, God, will they despise me? 
How long, watch the language here, will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? None of the men who have seen my glory, the glory there, and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, yet have put me to test ten times, here's what you want to underline, and have not, what? Obeyed my voice. This is the gripping nature of unbelief. This is why the word of God is the power to change a life. Because only the power of God is going to enable man to see that he is a sinner and he is truly hellbound. And so just as Isaiah said that the servant's mission and his message would be rejected, so also now in the New Testament, Jesus' mission and message were rejected. So John says in this, not, not in a giddy way, but don't, don't be surprised by unbelief. Isaiah said it was going to be that way. It prevailed in the Lord Jesus' day. It's going to prevail in our own day. So the first reason for unbelief, beloved, is man's stubborn choice. He refuses to bow to the lordship of Jesus Christ. He refuses to submit to God himself. That's the first reason. I mean, I even look back, and I'm sure in some of your testimonies, mine wasn't uh, to the degree in some sense that we find ourselves as older people in sin. I was just 14, and I've shared this with, with you before. But even as an eighth grader, I didn't want Jesus Christ to rule my life. And I think I told you that. I just put off coming to Christ until I was 35 I just thought, hey, I don't want him to rob my fun, you know, rain on my parade. And in some wicked way, not because I was involved in gross sin, but it was gross. I had a fist in the hand of God at 14. Don't you rule over me. And I just want you to know that was a conscious, purposeful, hard-hearted decision that I was making at 14. And the only way that God changed me is to reach down in me and reveal that to me. But I just say that to you. Say, Scott, why is there so much unbelief? Here's why. Man's stubborn refusal to bow his knee to God. And if you're here this morning, I would pray that you would not do that. I would, you say, well, Scott, it's his sovereignty. Yes, it is his sovereignty. I'll show you that in a moment. But all I know is he came in this time frame in history and he said, I want you to walk in the light. You only got the white a little longer. I want you to believe in the light while I'm here because there's a day coming when you cannot see me. And then, incredibly, he hides himself. You say, well, why, why does he do that? I think for the second reason of unbelief. That's the first one. The second reason is God's sovereign purpose. God's sovereign purpose. Now, you got to follow me on this. Go back to John chapter 12. This is a, a critical point that he is making. In other words, as people refuse the message of Christ, the light of Christ, the miracles of Christ, the truth of Christ, they are by their own evil hearts judged by God and actually left in darkness. Now, you'll look down, look at John chapter 12. He's going to give you a second prophetic fulfillment for unbelief. And you'll note in John chapter 12 now, it says in verse 40 that he has blinded their eyes, he, God, and harden their hearts 
lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I should heal them. This is fascinating because it's clear in the language, he, God, has blinded their eyes. And in that sense, he's hardened their hearts. How do we understand this second reason on God's sovereign purpose? And there is a terrifying reality here in honesty to you. I want to show you something. Look at 1237. Though he had done many signs before them, watch this. And I'm reading from the ESV. They still did not believe. They still did not believe in him. Now watch this in 1239 at the beginning. Therefore they, what does it say? Could not believe in him. And I really think there's an order here. Because they did not believe in him, the time came when they could not believe in him. And so he escapes. He, he hides. God has blinded their eyes. He has hardened their hearts. And you might be left just as I am reading this. Has he ordained this action? And my answer would be, well, yes, because it's clear there that he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart. But I I need to clarify this for you. And I'll clarify it by the words of Hendrickson, the great scholar and commentator. In other words, there's a judicial hardening here. We call that in theology. There's a stubborn refusal to bow the knee to the Savior. But then secondly, as you reject that Savior and reject the light, then there comes in there a judicial hardening by God. Hendrickson purposefully said, the fault lies not in any sense with God. He is the God of love. He is not a cruel monster who deliberately and with inward delight prepares people for everlasting damnation. In fact, Hendrickson went on to say, on the contrary, he earnestly warns, he earnestly pleads, he proclaims the gospel. In fact, not only does God do that, but Jesus does this in this very passage. Who then is this that, who is this son of man? He doesn't even answer their question. He just says, well, I'm here. I want you to come to me. Well, I'm here. I want you to walk in the light. While I'm here, Jesus says, I want you to believe in the lights. But listen, when people of their own accord and after repeated threats and promises spurn his messages, then and not until then, he hardens them in order that those who were not willing to repent now may not be able to repent. That's the truth of the scripture. It is a, there's a sense of urgency in this. I don't know another way to say it. He's preaching his final words. God himself in the flesh is standing before them and he's compelling them to believe. And by the spirit of God, I had no no idea. He may be compelling you. And there's a day that comes for them and for people where the lights go out, metaphorically. 
where they become overwhelmed by the darkness. And what's terrifying is because they would not believe, a time came when they could not believe, and I just want to say this clearly to you, the fault is on unbelieving man. Then judicial hardening sets in. Let me see if I can fill this out in the scripture for you. And to do that, I want to take you to some different places that show you this process where you did not believe and then he turns you over. Would you look over to Romans chapter one? Look over there. I think you've seen this before, but I want to show you this principle of what takes place not only here in John 12, but it takes place in many other places. But in Romans chapter one, you remember that when he's talking about the devolution of man, not the evolution of man, and he's talking about the wrath of God being poured out on people. Say, why does it come? Did did he just predestine them to that? No. So why why do you say that, Scott? You read it with me. Romans 1.21. For although they knew, what? God. And, And he'll say in Romans 2, every man knows him. Seven billion people know him by the conscience that he's placed in them. And although they knew God, look at 121, they did not, what? Honor him as God, which is the Greek word doxa. They did not glorify him as God or give thanks. They became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. In other words, rather than glorifying God, they glorify man. Watch the language in 24. Therefore, God, what? gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Do you see the pattern? They didn't honor God. They didn't glorify God. They didn't worship God. They didn't bow their knee to God. And what God says in verse 24, therefore, God gave them over. And he uses this Greek word, which I'll never forget. It's the word paradidomai. He just delivers people over to their own sin. In fact, look at verse 25. Because they, emphasis on fallen man, exchange the truth, it's in them. It's coming out of them. What do you say, Scott? What do you mean it's coming out of them? Well, back up in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness, what do they do? Suppress the truth. This is fascinating. You say, what do you mean they're suppressing the truth? The truth is coming up. The truth is exploding up to them. The truth is like a volcano. And what sinful man is doing is suppressing it and holding it down. Hey, Dad, do you think it would be okay if I brought you some literature to help you understand the nature of torment? Would you listen to it? No, not really. I mean, this, this, is, this just was an exchange that he just recently had. He's offering his father in the person of Christ the gift of eternal life. No, not really. 
You say, well, who did, did he just predestine his father for that? Oh, no. It's coming up. He's suppressing. So go down in 25 now. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And now this reason, verse 26, for this reason, God gave them over to dishonorable passions for women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. Understand? You push and push and suppress and suppress. There, t- there comes a time where God delivers people over. And, and I can only say to you, I hope there's no one in here this morning that is pushing them out. Now, you don't have to push them out like a big sinner. You can just be like me at 14 with your fist in his face because you don't want to yield to God. And there comes a time in people's life and in the nation's life where he turned them over. This is what Romans says. Look at verse 27. It says there, and men likewise gave up their natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men, receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And they did not see fit to acknowledge God, verse 28, and so God gave them up to a debased mind to do what, not, what ought not to be done. Three times he gives people over, and that is a description of the culture in which we live today. So how do people come to that place? Just keep suppressing the truth. Just keep pushing. I think I've told you that story before when I was a kid. My dad used to take me, make me take out the trash. Ah, dad, you know, ah, Scott, you just got to obey. Okay, dad. So I'd go out and I, 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 I don't know if you remember this. My sister's here, Tracy. And I'd have to go into our little house in Canoga Park. And we just had those metal trash cans. They still have those. And the trash would be coming out of the top. And I'd have to, I I could probably do this on the pulpit. I would have to jump up on the trash can, step on the trash can. And I would just push and push and push the trash down. And I would get out and I'd kind of wipe my brow. And the trash started to come back up. And I always thought this is a picture here of what this looks like. You think people don't know? No. You, You think people don't understand? No. You, you think people just weren't raised in it. No, they don't want a king over them. And here it's coming up and they are suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. There it is in Romans 1. Can you look over in 2 Thessalonians? I'm just trying to show you a few places where this lives out in John 12. But in 2 Thessalonians, turn over there. It's about the Antichrist, and I want to just take you to language here, okay? 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, okay? It's talking about the Antichrist. It's talking about the end of the world, and it's talking about the lawless one that's coming in that tribulation time. And it says in 2 Thessalonians 2, 9, it speaks of the coming of the lawless one by the activity of Satan with all power, interesting, He's coming is the lawless one, the Antichrist, with all power. He's coming with false signs. He's coming with wonders. What a time this will be in the future of our world. And with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, you say, well, why? Well, look at it in 2.10. Because they refused to what? Love the truth and 
so be saved. I'm only reading the Bible to you. He's not talking about predestining people to an endless destruction. He says at the end of the world, Satan's going to come. He's going to deceive with power and signs. And what they're going to do is refuse to love the truth and so to be saved. Watch this in the next verse. Look at it in 11. Therefore, therefore, in response, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that they may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. I don't think it could be any clearer. So if you're ever with somebody and you think they don't understand, no, they understand by their conscience in Romans 2. For what has been seen, the attributes of God, it says in Romans 1, has clearly been seen so that man is without what? Excuse. So here is this emphasis. There's a third one, and and I don't have to turn you there, is God's dealings with Pharaoh. I mean, how do you explain that? Ten separate times, Pharaoh hardened his what? Heart. Then, got to be fair, ten other times, God hardened his heart. He said, well, Scott, who is it? The answer is both. He hardened his heart ten times, and God hardened his heart, Pharaoh's, ten times. Let me put it this way. Pharaoh would not believe And a time came when he could not believe. So listen, if you're here, you may be in junior high this morning. You may have walked in as a visitor. You say, well, what should I do? Walk in the light. Believe in the light. If you're you're even in hearing of my voice today, this is the grace of God from the scripture to you. Because the light hasn't gone off. The fact that you're here is the grace of God. In fact, Leon Morris, the great commentator, said this of this ideal of the sovereignty of God's purpose. He said, John does not mean that the blinding takes place against the will of the people. He said, these men chose evil. It was their own deliberate choice and their own fault. I believe that. They're unwilling to believe, and those who are unwilling to believe may find themselves one day frightening, unable to believe. He sometimes just turns people over. And and if you're here and you know Christ, you just need to say, God, thank you for your mercy, right? Whether you're young or old, when that mercy came, is he showed you your sin. Carson put it this way in theological language. He said, God's, and this is the phrase, judicial hardening is not presented as capricious manipulation of an arbitrary potent, or potentent, or however you say that. He said, but, he said, as a holy condemnation of guilty people who are condemned to do and be what they themselves have chosen. So listen, you, you've got to come to Christ. You say, well, Scott, if, 
so few believed. Is, is he still reigning? Is he still ruling? And Isaiah's going to say, it was all planned. So don't be surprised. Don't think the plan's been thwarted. In fact, far from the plan being thwarted, God was fulfilling his plan. You say, well, how so? Look, you got to see this. Go back to Romans chapter 11. Go back to Romans chapter 11. Because not only were the, the Jewish people unbelieving, but God was fulfilling his very purpose in their unbelief, even though they chose it. So it says, you got to look at this with your eyes in Romans 11, 11. He said, so I ask in 11, 11, did they stumble in order that they might fall? Now you see it there. He says in 11, 11, by no means. I still have that stuff memorized in the Greek. May genita. May it never be. Perish the thought. So I asked, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel, what? Jealous. In other words, as the Jews rejected him, the gospel goes to all without distinction, including you as Gentiles. Look at verse 12 of chapter 11. If their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion be? He's just talking about how the greatness of God is, is that even though they lived in perpetual unbelief, and even though they, I mean, it's hard to say verbally, they crucified their Savior. You say, was that out of control? Oh, no. He was on his way to the cross for you. As they reject him, as they live in disbelief, as they bear their responsibility for that, God's performing a miraculous sovereign purpose to redeem you in the death of his son. And so they were to take the message of the true God to the world and they didn't do it uh, through their obedience and faith. So they had to do it through judgment and God did that. Look at verse 17. Of Romans 11, but if some of the branches were broken off, and you, the Gentiles, although a wild olive shoot were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, he says, Do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root supports you, then you will say, Branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. It's amazing. God is accomplishing his sovereign purpose through the unbelief that we might be brought in. But there's one final thought in John 12. Would you go back? I, I still read this and am stunned by it. In John chapter 12, he finishes that second prophetic fulfillment from Isaiah. And have you, I think I've showed, at least read this before. He's collectively here. Isaiah said these things... Because he saw, what does it say? His glory, and then here's the key. And he spoke of him. Isaiah saw his glory and spoke of him. Grammatically, in verse 41, 
the only glory that he could have seen in this passage and then put this modifier to it, spoke of him, he was speaking of who? The Lord Jesus Christ. He saw his glory and he spoke of him. But I want to show you, that's not what we commonly think. Go back to Isaiah 6. Remember, that was the passage. Just trying to make clarity for you. Remember, we looked earlier at Isaiah 6, 9 and 10, when he said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and their blind eyes, lest the eye lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Remember, that was the quotation from John 12, 40. And you know the context there. Look at 6.1. And the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Who did he see? Well, at least in Isaiah's vision, he saw God. And God was sitting on a throne high and lifted up and the train of the robe filled his temple and above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face and with two he covered his feet and with two he flew. And it says there that one called to another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And I've shared with you before, it's not holy, holy, holy because of the Trinity, which is what most people think. It's just a Hebrew expression of thrice saying something, you know, three times. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. He said the whole earth is full of his glory. And as he's in that temple there in Isaiah 6, the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house of the Lord was filled with smoke. And Isaiah said, you know it, woe is me. Now, what you're saying is he had, a, he had a vision of God. But John says that the glory Isaiah saw was Jesus' glory. It spoke of him. Beloved, it is one of the greatest statements of the deity of Jesus Christ in the entire Bible. That the one born in the manger was none other than the throne sitter before whom the seraphim worshipped. It spoke of him. One final thought. If that spoke of him, then the blinding of the eyes and the deadening and the numbing of the heart was not caused by God. It was a description of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, there comes a time, and consistent with John's description, that Jesus operates as the judge. So they did not believe in him, and there comes a time where they could not believe in him. But would you look as John closes the chapter out, just fascinating, just briefly. Nevertheless, 42, it says there many of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. What do you make about that? Well, just as you read it, is they believed but they did not confess it, him, 
so that they wouldn't be put out of the synagogue. Are these believers? Are they fake believers? Are they real believers? Are they unbelievers? There's some question as to who they are. In fact, I had a Jewish man in class this week. I was at the seminary teaching just for one day the doctoral students and a man spoke. I was telling him about my passage just as it related to teaching and I could obviously hear his accent, knew he was a Jewish man and he said, Scott, I think maybe they were knowing Christ. I said, why do you think that? He said, because I'm a Jew and because if you're Jewish and you had just come to the Savior, we have such an expectation that somebody coming to Christ immediately within a week or two weeks is going to have full-blown maturity. And he goes, in some cases, it takes time for people to mature. And I said, thank you. I said, I appreciate that. That could be. But what's interesting here is the thought and the language, and I don't have to be over dogmatic here, is that they were not confessing Christ. And the language says this, they were not confessing Christ day by day, is the thought. So they believed in him, but they weren't confessing. You say, well, why? Well, the motive is there. Look at verse 43. Here's why. He said, for they loved, here was the real reason, the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. I think it would be best to consistently say this is a false faith. This is a pseudo faith. In fact, I think they were trying to be secret disciples. You, that may be you. Forget them, it may be you. Barclay said secret discipleship is a contradiction in terms. He said for either the secrecy kills the discipleship he said, or the discipleship kills the secrecy. And so they didn't want to confess him. Have you confessed him? And I, I just mean that tenderly. Have you, like, not dad, not mom, not grandpa. Have you confessed him? You've got to confess him. They didn't confess him. And do you ever just look back and think they didn't confess him? And then the words of Jesus come hauntingly. What shall it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his what? His soul. So here's this final invitation. It's met by tragic unbelief. And so as I finished a couple weeks ago, I'll close it out this way. There's three types of people here. Only three types and probably not more. Okay? You might be an unbeliever. And I just want to put it this way. If you're an unbeliever, you can be honest. Some, I was sitting at a table with someone on Wednesday night. And somebody I know, and Rick was there, and Rick asked her, do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? And, you know, her mom does. And she just said, no, I'm not a believer. You may be an unbeliever, but I just, I want you to know it's good to be honest, but understand that you're making a moral choice to not believe, okay? You're choosing to be the king of your own castle and reign in your own world. There could be true believers here who back in 1225, do you see it there in 1225? It says there they 
They, whoever loves his life loses it. Here's a true believer. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it to eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must what? Follow me. If you're a believer, then praise God. How will you know? Do you follow him? Not with perfection, but direction. So we've got unbelievers, we've got true believers, and then I just say it this way, we got make-believers in here. Just like they were make-believers who believed in Christ, but they didn't want to confess him. Some of you, and I say that with uh, compassion and passion towards you, then you need to come clean and bow your knee to the sovereignty of God. You say, well, why, Scott? Maybe I, I like to be a little more quiet. Well, Luke 12, Jesus said, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels in glory. So you say, well, Scott, what, what would you say to this? Wherever you are, here's what I would tell you. And I have to finish it this way. I think it's like I just finished it this way. Is Jesus is so kind. He just is so tender towards you. That even when they said, who is this son of man? He would compel you to walk in the light. He would compel you to believe in the light. He would compel you by his grace. It's not too late to come to him. But believe me, there does come a day at some point, sovereignly, where he turns people over to their own destruction. And I just pray that you would open your eyes and see the Lordship of Jesus Christ.